continue on in Ecclesiastes. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. So we've got chapter 10, 11, and 12, and we'll be done. We'll be moving on to a new book of the Bible, and that'll be exciting. But we've still got lots of good stuff uh, in this series, and this is really going to be kind of a mini-series within a series uh, as Solomon talks more about wisdom. How many of y'all go to bookstores? Anyone like to go book? Bookstores? Any, no? Do you guys read books? Did anyone read books? A couple of you do. Magazines? Eh, kind of. Well, you you don't you don't have to uh, be in a bookstore very long to realize that a vast majority of what you see in the self help section or uh, even the Christian section or wherever you are is a bunch of people who have a little bit of experience and they claim some expertise in an area and they decided they should write a book. Whether it be a how-to book or just a book of wisdom, they want to give um, something back, so to speak. And, and I don't know if you've noticed the trend or not, but I have in the Christian world, that everybody in 2017 can write a book. Everybody. Like, you you got to really read. Um, if someone says, hey, have you read this? Have you read that? you gotta, you got to do some background work on the author to see, are they, are they someone I should be listening to? Um, you know, one of the books that I read when we first got into church planting was from a guy who uh, was well-known, but he'd only planted one church. You know, we've been a part of three church plants, and I'm not anywhere close to feeling secure enough to write a book about how to plant a church. Um, you see, not all authors are equal. Not all books um, that offer wisdom in an area are equal. And so what we're studying tonight with Solomon, who was the king um, under his father's former reign in Israel. He had uh, this huge kingdom. He has all of this power. He's rich. He's wise. He's got everything. And he's at the end of his life, and he's writing down uh, basically a memoir to us that 3,000 years later we're reading and we're learning, this guy, he's someone to listen to. Like, he knew what he was doing. The Bible says he's the wisest man outside of Christ that's ever walked. So this puts everything that you see in the bookstore to shame. And so what we're looking at tonight is we see in chapter 10, um, in seven verses, we're going to see basically some Proverbs. Now, Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs as well as Song of Songs. And so he is uh, the primary author of what we call the wisdom literature in the Bible. And when you look at Proverbs, most of us look at these Proverbs and think these are just short kind of pithy statements that are not connected. They're just random bits of wisdom. They're kind of like Solomon's Twitter feed, if you had one, where you just see, oh, that's a a nice little uh, line, one-liner. But we're going to see these statements that that offer brief, um, impactful, memorable, insightful truths. We're going to see them tonight connected by this common theme, and that's wisdom and action. You can talk about having wisdom all day long. What does it actually look like to live with wisdom. Like, we're going to just get practical as we can tonight. And it's important as we continue on in Ecclesiastes, because we've been in here for several months now, that we understand where we are in the whole book of the Bible. Again, it doesn't mention the name Jesus, but Jesus is hope because every book of the Bible, every author is ultimately pointing to Jesus. The Bible's primary story is the good news of Jesus, and the wisdom literature helps us to have good advice along the way. And the reason God wants us to have wisdom, he wants us to have books like Ecclesiastes is because he cares not just about us in heaven, but us on earth. And so he gives us wisdom. And for some of us, wisdom is primarily theoretical. 
Like it's, it's like, oh, that's, something, that's super smart, that's intelligent. We've talked about how it's more than knowledge, it's more than intelligence, but it's very practical. And for those of you who say, okay, I love the idea, we're going to get into some really, really practical stuff, you've got to understand wisdom in the Bible in general is more about principles than processes. If you leave here and you say, well, okay, I got step one, two, three, three A, three B, three C, and you like to live in that world, it doesn't always work that way. But the Bible teaches us in Ecclesiastes, here are some principles, here's some truths that just like a farmer has seed and he gathers it so that at the right time he can sow it and there will be fruit that comes from it, you gather wisdom and you store these principles, you store these things in your heart and your mind and when the time comes, you'll look back and you'll say, Scripture talked about that and you'll, you'll have that word hidden in your heart. So with that being said, Over the next few weeks, we're going to cover about 15 wisdom principles, wisdom in action, and we're going to jump into the first five tonight. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to open it up, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. The theme is wisdom in action, verses 8 through 15. Jump right in. Verse 8 says, when you dig a well, you might fall in, and when you demolish an old wall, you could be bitten by a snake. When you work in a quarry, stones might fall and crush you. And when you chop wood, there is a danger with each stroke of the axe. First principle, consider the risk. Consider the risk. In four ways, he tells us essentially the same thing in these two verses. He's saying, listen, some circumstances, some situations are just inherently dangerous. There's just risk to them. They're they're dangerous And fools don't see danger. They just go blindly into whatever they want, a relationship, a new job. They they just wander throughout life, and they don't stop and think, what are the pros and what are the cons to this? What's the risk involved? But wise people do. And the truth is, if most of us were honest, all of us at certain times in our lives, maybe you right now, uh, we blame God for circumstances gone wrong, right? When maybe... um, Maybe we were digging a well, and we actually fell in it. Or we were demolishing an old wall, and we found there's a snake down there, and it bit us. And we say, God, how could you? Why'd you let me get bit by the snake? Why, why'd you let the stones fall on me? And God's saying, I gave you guys like Solomon to teach you to consider risk, to consider the pros and cons. Are you uh, an optimist or a pessimist? Have you, let me ask you Raise your hand if you're an optimist. You think of only the good in situations, right? A few of you, they're all ladies, by the way, it looks like. Except for Michael, except for Michael. What about pessimists? Any of you consider yourselves a pessimist? Your husband's a pessimist. He's just not here. Speak for him. Nice. Nice. I, um, I consider myself a realist um, because sometimes, hey, sometimes it's good to be pessimistic but other times optimistic tara is more of a optimist i'm more uh, of a pessimist and i tell her because she says why are you always a pessimist about things and i say listen if i was in heaven because i'm a realist if i was in heaven i'd be optimistic because everything would be golden but i'm on earth and things are broken so generally to be a realist means you're going to be a pessimist because that's just how it works it's not a good answer in her book but anyway that's how we that's how we roll some of us are so optimistic that we're foolish. That we only see the, the good. We see opportunities as opportunities and not opportunities to fail. 
And so we sometimes have tunnel vision and we just run into new situations, not thinking about the downside, not thinking about what could happen that's wrong. And we think, you know what? This is the way I like to live life. But then we blame God when the risky things actually happen in a negative way. And God's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. Silas, this morning, when I came home from lunch, he was running around with his cousin, and they had, um, they had blankets covering their whole bodies. And they were, one of them was like, let's be a ghost. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of creepy. But anyway, they were playing, playing ghosts, so to speak, and, and they were running around. And then I heard a scream from the hall, and Silas was wrapped up on the floor in his blanket. And he, he said um, that he hit the doorknob, and he, he got a shiner on his eye. And I said, dude, you knew this could happen, right? And the truth was he just wasn't thinking about getting his noggin knocked. He was only thinking about how fun it would be to walk around and pretend like everything's okay. And, and that's silly for a three-year-old, and it's silly for 30-year-olds. And it's silly for 40 and 50 and 60-year-olds to just be blinded to the fact that there's realistic risk in life. And some of our issues are because we don't consider those risks. Let me ask you, here's... a. Uh, a good question to ask yourself, do you get mad at people who offer the other side? Who, who say, you do know moving to that city might not be a good idea. You do know that taking that job might not fit your personality. You, you do know, and you fill in the blank, and you say, you're just a downer. Why can't you support me? Is that you? Solomon's saying, no, they're actually just wise. And you should be like that. It's not bad to be optimistic as long as you're realistic. And some of us, we compartmentalize when we consider the risk, right? Like if you look at your life, um, some of us in some areas, we consider the risk all the time. In other areas of our life, we, we just don't. We're blinded to it. And it's interesting how that happens. Some of us, when we're at work, um, we consider the risk because maybe our employer makes us consider the risk. But in our personal lives, we, we don't. We jump into relationships and we don't think much about it. But we wouldn't take a client at work without considering, hmm, are they good or bad for this? Right? Some of us, um, we're really uh, considerate of risks in our relationships. We say, hmm, hmm, based on their track record, probably shouldn't date them probably shouldn't even let them in my house kind of thing. Um, but then in, in things like our finances, we don't consider the risk. We, blot, we buy that. We put it on the credit card. We think, well, hey, it'll all work out, right? And, and we just hope that the numbers all match up. Some of us, um, we, are, uh, we consider the risk in our finances, right? And we're like, eh, you know what? I want to be by the book. But, but in our schedules, and our organization, um, we, we don't consider the risk. And so we told so-and-so we were going to have coffee with them at four, but then we told someone else that we were going to meet with them later in the afternoon. Well, the coffee uh, date went from four to six, and that was late afternoon. And the other person says, where were you? I thought we were going to get together, and you didn't consider the harm you were going to cause them by double booking your afternoon. And you say, I just I wanted to get together with both of them. You're saying you're walking around making people hurt. So let me ask you, do you consider the risk? Do you consider the risk in some areas of your life and ignore the risk in other areas? For me, <laughs> Tara can answer this real quick. The area that I, the primary area that I do not consider much risk in 
is house projects. Matter of fact, this is kind of how I do it. I know that if I think too much about the house project and, I, and, and reality sinks in, this is going to cost a lot. It's going to take a lot of time. I just won't do it. So like if I'm painting, what I'll do is instead of sleeping on it, this is not what you should do, by the way. Instead of sleeping on, well, should we paint the house? You know, we haven't talked about it that much. I will, um, I, before I go to bed, I'll just go take a paintbrush and just like go to the area that I want to paint and just like, just do, just paint a little bit. So when I wake up, like no turning back. Someone's got to paint something. It's got to get done. Or if I'm gonna if I'm gonna demo something, I'll start ripping some of it apart the night before. And then I wake up, I'm like, well, we're already in it. Might as well just do it. And then I I just deal with the the fallout when it comes. Is that you? Here's the thing. Solomon's he's not saying he's not saying you can't take risks because sometimes it's good to work in a quarry. Sometimes you gotta chop wood. Sometimes you've got to dig a well because water's worth it. He's not saying you can't take risks. He's just saying consider the risks. Matter of fact, the gospel in and of itself is risky. You're going to give your life to an unseen God. You're going to put your faith in a man that 2,000 years ago came and died on a cross. You're going to be a missionary at work, and they're going to think you're stupid. They're going to think you're weird. You're going to invite your friends over and be hospitable to them and to show them God's love. You're going to serve people at church. Well, church people can be weird. That's going to be odd, right? Like there's risk all over the place. And so there's often times where you see this verse where you say, okay, I need to consider the risk, the downside to things. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit will say, even though you could get hurt in that relationship, love them and serve them even though they might take that money on the street corner and go buy alcohol with it, doesn't mean you don't help the homeless man. Go ahead and love them anyway. And you know, I considered the risk, and the Spirit's still telling me it's worth it. It's worth it. That's why, again, there's no step one, two, three to wisdom like this. You've got to be Spirit-led, and you've got to have these principles hidden in your heart. Verse 10. He says, using a dull axe requires great strength. So sharpen the blade. That's the value of wisdom. It helps you succeed. Second principle, work smarter, not harder. Work smarter, not harder. I am. This is what I love about going verse by verse through books of the Bible. Because if I was going to get up on a Sunday and I'm thinking, man, I can talk to anyone uh, about anything, and I'm going to think just just the pure basic truths of the gospel. Like I'm probably not coming up with, hey, point number two, work harder, not smarter. Like this isn't making my top 100 of things to preach, but this is all of the full counsel of God. And so it's um, I don't know, it's refreshing to jump into some of these topics on a Wednesday night. When I when I was in uh, firefighter school back in the day, um, I was being certified to be a wildland firefighter, and part of that you had to you had to be a chainsaw technician. You ever? dream there was such a thing. Um, and so we learned about cutting down trees and cutting down trees and cutting down trees and trying not to get killed in, in the middle of it all. And we had all kinds of tools. Of course, when you went out there, you had a belt and you had uh, your chainsaw, you had um, different axes, you had different wedges, you had different tools to sharpen. You had all kinds of tools to do the job. You want to know one tool we never had? We never had a butter knife. We never, we never just used our hand to cut the tree down. You say, of course you didn't. That sounds crazy. And, but it wouldn't have been sinful. It would have just been stupid. And, and that's, what, that's what he's saying. 
Solomon's saying, guys, listen, life is hard the way it is. There's already going to be enough difficulty. Don't make it harder on yourself. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in all of our lives that, that we do that's not necessarily sinful. It's just stupid. It's not something that needs to be rebuked. It's just inefficient. It's just not a good use of time. Solomon's saying there's a different way to live. Let me ask you, are you spending lots of time and energy on certain things in life and getting minimal results? Is that you? You see, planners, organizers, people who love efficiency, they read this verse and they hear about butter knife loggers and they think, oh, <laughs> those people drive me nuts. I cringe inside at the idea. It's just a tree with a butter knife. Like that, that is not a tool you should be using. It's not sinful, but it's just silly. It's going to take you forever. You're making things harder on yourself. You're spinning your wheels. Is that you? Is that what you feel like in your relationships right now? You're not getting anywhere close to marriage. Or if you're in marriage, you're not growing closer together. It's not being strengthened right now. Your parenting, it's just kind of on coast. Just to get through these years, this season, and then things will get better. Or maybe you're trying to save financially and you're like, well, I save $100, have to spend $125, can't build a savings, and you're struggling. And you're just like, man, I'm spinning my wheels. I'm not making progress in areas of life that I know I, I want to and I know God's even leading me to. Let me, give you a, let me give you a bunch of illustrations just to hammer this home. If you find yourself, um, if you find yourself spending 45 minutes crafting the perfect email, probably should just click delete and pick up the phone and call them, right? Have you found yourself working all morning and someone says, what'd you do this morning? I've just been exhausted. Well, I've been emailing people. How many emails? Like four, but they were just complicated situations. Pick up the phone and call them. It's just inefficiency. Just inefficiency. What about um, losing stuff? Any of you guys notorious for losing your phone or losing your keys? A couple of you. Like some of us, we, it happens once, but then it happens twice and, and three times. And Solomon's saying, organize. Get organized. Some of us need to organize our homes. We need to organize our, our workplaces. Uh, if you can't find documents at work and you're like, okay, I'm wasting more time looking for something than, than I should be. It'd be easier just to clean everything up and be organized than to be looking for stuff all the time. Solomon's saying, get organized. What about social media? Some of you guys love social media. I, social media takes a lot of time. Sometimes it's time well used. Other times it's just a waste of time. I tried because I was pressured into it. Um, I tried being on Twitter for like two weeks. This is like nine months ago. And I realized very quickly, if you're going to be on Twitter and you want to actually make an impact with it, like give, give, impart some wisdom on people, you've got to live what I call the Twitter lifestyle. Where like you, you're, you're thinking and, and, and trying to craft, you know, wonderful wisdom into 144 characters. And I found I'd be like reading a book. I'd get half a page in. I'd be like, oh, that's good. How can I summarize that? I was spending like 30 minutes. The, a couple times I spent 15, 20, 30 minutes trying to craft something so I could give a little bit of wisdom on Twitter. It took me two weeks. I said, I'm done. I cannot do that. There's better ways to use my time. I'll just go stand in front of someone and tell them the same. It's upset. It'll be much more efficient. 
much more efficient. Tara, she always gets upset with me because I'm old school. I've got a calendar in, in my office that I like to write things on. I can't wait to write. I've got a monster calendar, but I don't have Google Calendar. I don't have any of that. And she will ask me at home. She'll be like, hey, can we have dinner with so-and-so on such-and-such date? I'll be like, oh, no, I'll check when I get at work. And she, get, she gets so tired. She's like, I can't respond to them until you go to work in the morning. Then I've got to text you while you're at work to say, remember to check your calendar. And then you've got to get back to me. And then you're annoyed because I'm taking time out of work. And then, and I say, eh, I don't know. I, I just, it just is what it is. If you've got three-year-olds, you know about inefficiency. This is one of those I would not show on a Sunday morning, but we've got a little more intimate thing going on Wednesday nights. This was a few weeks ago. Silas is all up in this toilet. This was after a whole bunch of minutes sitting on, on the toilet. And, and I, he, we got to keep our stuff clean because he just gets up in it. Like he rubs his noggin on the back. And he, I don't even know where his rear end is on this. But he's just relaxed. And I walked in. I was like, dude, get off. Like, do your thing and get off. And, and, um, and he's just doing his thing. It's inefficient. Is that you? Let me, let's, let's apply this a bit. He's comfortable like that. He's enjoying it a little too much. It's kind of creepy, honestly. <laughs> I, um, it's hard to follow that up. What do you do if you're a butter knife logger? If you're doing things that are not necessarily sinful, they're just, they're just foolish. They're a waste of time. Well, you got to stop. you got to analyze your life. Ask your friends. Some people are gifted in organization and planning and time management. The big idea in what Solomon is saying here, the reason he's even given us this wisdom is because we want to maximize every second on earth, not getting caught up in the weeds of life, the maintenance of Monday through Friday, but to maximize our time to use it for the kingdom of God. Life is short. Life is short. He's saying that's the value of wisdom. It helps you to succeed. It creates time. So what do you need to do? Some of you need to invest in a to-do list. It's amazing that people don't have to-do lists and work any job in America ever. (laughs) But some don't. Get a to-do list. Some of you, you, you're inefficient because you spend two hours trying to focus on an hour's worth of work. Get some sleep. Prioritize some sleep. Some of us, we need to organize. Some of us, we need better tools. If you're at home, we're painting the house at home. I... Uh, went out and spent $100 getting a little Wagner spray thing. And, and I knew it's either going to take me 10 times the length times to do this, take away from family time, or I could just go get this tool. Well, it broke three times in two weeks. They just keep giving me a new one. And I keep getting in. And Tara's like, are you going to just get your money at some point? Nope, because it's still five times quicker than if I painted this by hand. Invest in some technology. If it takes you 45 minutes to dial up to the Internet, just to communicate with your family. Get, get some better internet. What do you do if you're living with a logger? Some of you, this is where, um, this is where um, you're at. You've got a butter knife logger in your life. Here's the thing. Be patient. Don't be frustrated. They don't need a rebuke. They need instruction. And this, maybe this is the only thing that speaks to you tonight. They don't have to be like you to be like Jesus. There's organization tools and tips that work for some people that don't work for others. People have their own way of doing things. Help them, encourage them, don't be frustrated with them, but you're not making disciples of yourself. You're making disciples of Jesus. Don't lose focus of the end goal. Work harder, not smarter. And there's that picture one last time for you. 
Verse 11. Now we're getting into the good stuff. Very relevant for our lives. If a snake bites you before you charm it, what's the use of being a snake charmer? You ever thought that to yourself? Does that cross your mind? Any of you meditate on that verse day in and day out? Third principle. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until it's too late. Now, um, there's probably not many of you with snake charming degrees in here. I don't know many colleges that offer that anymore, but apparently it was a thing uh, 3,000 years ago and, and still is around the world. Now, here's, here's the goal, obviously, for them. They, they want to master a snake. They want uh, this venomous snake to, to be mastered. They want to be in charge so that it, they can get this snake to obey them, right? And, and hopefully... The benefit is not only the pride of being able to, to make this snake do what you want, but you get payment because people want to come and they want to see it, right? That's how you make money. Now, here's the reality. Solomon's saying some of them got bit and they died. So you're looking at the situation. You say, I could make money this way. I, I could accomplish something. This is a situation that could benefit me. And then, boom, all of a sudden, the risk... <laughs> now became reality and you, you, you get bit and you die and you're, you're saying it just wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. Was it? I bet the guy's family. That's why, uh, this is why I can't do some things in life. Like there used to be a, a kind of a, a, a daredevil side of me. It is getting wimpier and wimpier by the day. I, Tara's like, could you ever skydive? And I just say, I could, I could dive. What I couldn't do is have that be the end of my story. Like, I couldn't picture someone be like, he was a pastor, he had a ministry to hundreds of people, he was making an impact for the kingdom of God. Well, God really wanted him up in heaven, what did he do? No, he just jumped out of a plane on his own and he died, it went wrong. Like, wow, that kind of discredits like half of what he seemed to do in life. I mean, it just doesn't feel worth it. It feels like, that's just silly. That's a silly way to go. I don't know that I, I could inflict that on myself. Obviously, God's sovereignty is a little bit bigger than our stupidity, but... It's a reality. You see, the big idea in, in your life, here's what Solomon's saying, is there's some things in life that uh, they need your focus, they need your atti- attention because they're urgent. And, and if you don't give them the attention they need, if you don't focus on them, if you don't take them serious, then you might get bit, you might have some heartache, you might experience some tragedy from it. So the first step for most of us is know what's urgent and what needs to be prioritized. Our culture loves to misplace urgency, right? You go into any meeting with anyone, whether you're in church, whether you, you work in the secular world, whatever it might be, and it's like, it's, like going, it's like going through airport security. People come in to my office, and they, they do this number. They take out their phone, and they kind of turn it off, and then they got their computer like, oh, let me turn off the notifications. And there's so many things that are buzzing and ringing and making sounds, and there's notifications popping up, and, and they got watches on that tell them everything they need in the world, and, and everything's smart, but everything makes us feel stupid. And they, they have to turn all this stuff off because we're constantly in the middle of a good conversation. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I got to turn this off. And, and it just interrupts things, right? And so we don't know what's important. I feel like I need to get back to that email. No, you probably don't right now. You don't even need to check it right now. Well, I'm sorry, I need to take this. Well, once in a while, but all the time. And it confuses us. What's urgent? What's urgent? The second step is once you find out what's urgent and what needs to be prioritized, 
don't confuse the two. Meaning, what's urgent and what's not urgent, don't confuse them. You see, I, I mentioned last week or the week before the tyranny of the urgent, right? There's always something that's coming up. There's always something that's saying, me, 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 me. And it, um, it'll consume you. I talked to someone not, not too long ago, and they said that they kind of felt neglected. They said they, they wanted a little more pastoral care, and they'd been with us in the congregation for years. And, and so I, I talked to them, and, and it boiled down to not that, that we weren't giving pastoral care, but we were giving pastoral care to the ones who were saying, me, 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 me. And, and this family was quiet, and, and they seemed to be doing okay. And so we would check in on them, make sure they're okay, but like we, we weren't there trying to read their minds or pry into them. And I felt for them, because even as church leadership, we give in to whatever's screaming the most and the loudest. See, even if you've got a to-do list, you need to prioritize it. One thing I do first thing in the morning is I see everything I got on my to-do list and then I arrange it. What's got to get done first. If I only had half a day, if something happens, if I got to go to the hospital, if an emergency happens, what do I need to do today? Don't need to do everything. Some of us have a hard time sleeping at night because our to-do list wasn't accomplished. Well, the nature of to-do lists is that they won't be accomplished. It's just, <laughs> they always continue and you're going to add to them and they're going to grow. Um, but, there's supposed to be a blessing, not a guilt trip, that you're not getting everything done. Um, the blessing is you don't have to think about remembering every little detail about everything. You got it on paper. But you need to prioritize what needs to be done. In God's economy, here's the prioritizing scale. He always has himself first. If you're not spending time with God, nothing else matters. If you're not in his presence, nothing else matters. If you're not in his word, if you're not talking to him, if you're not, if you're not abiding in him, then all the rest of this is pretty pointless. And I could say that theologically and you can understand it, but most of us know what it feels like tangibly. Because we know if we're accomplishing everything we want on our to-do list in the world, but things aren't okay with him, we still feel miserable, don't we? Like something's missing. Something's missing. And then way, 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 way down the list after God is number one, we've got relationships. Obviously, uh, if you're married, your spouse is first. Then if you've got kids, your kids are second. And, and then friends and other family and other relationships, right? And, and then way, 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 way down the road comes work and, and volunteering and, and all that other stuff. Everything's important, but everything's got its place. So let me ask you. Are you spending your time and energy on the things that matter most in life? You know, often the things that are the most urgent are the most quiet. I'm sorry, honey, I can't be there tonight. I got to go do this other thing. Okay, I understand. But that's going to bite you. That's the snake that bites you 20 years down the road when you realize I've neglected my family for the sake of meeting other people's needs that I didn't necessarily need to. Silas isn't going to be pulling me aside saying, you know what, the amount of quality time we, we, we've been lacking lately, it's really starting to affect my psyche. He's three, he's not doing that. But 10 years from now, I'll be listening to Cat in the Cradle and I'm going to start crying driving to some conference to preach, 
I'm going to have snot bubbles coming out, and I'm going to say, oh my gosh, I am the song. I'm, I'm, I'm a cat in the cradle song. I said I'd never be the cat in the cradle song, and here I am. Don't get bit. The urgent needs to be the things that are prioritized as high on your list. Let that be the urgent. Even if it's not screaming at you, doesn't mean it's not number one. Verses 12 through 14, essentially several different ways of saying the same thing. He says, wise words bring approval. In some translations it says favor. So when you say wise things, when you're smart, when you're pure in speech, um, you gain favor with people. But fools are destroyed by their own words. You leave a fool in a conversation a little bit too long, and you know when you're hanging out with a fool and you're like, you know what, I don't think I should leave them talking to this person. They're going to get themselves in trouble. They're going to go on and on, and it's going to sound goofy, and I don't know if I can even trust them. Verse 13, fools base their thoughts, so we go from words to thoughts, on foolish assumptions. So their conclusions will be wicked madness. You ever just let your mind wander a little bit and before you start to think in all kinds of crazy stuff and their assumptions, and then you talk to someone who hasn't been worrying about all this stuff, and they say, whoa, 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 back up. You haven't even talked to that person. Why are you thinking that they hate you? You haven't even, you haven't even talked to your boss. Why are you thinking you're going to get fired? Just relax, relax. They chatter on and on. And no one really knows what is going to happen. No one can predict the future. Now, that's been a theme for several chapters in Ecclesiastes, verse 14. But here it's specifically tied to these two. We let our minds go wild. We let our words go wild. And it's all an attempt to control things in life. And we think, well, if I just eh, get in here and manipulate this situation, and if I, you know what, I should just give them a call. I, sh- I can't wait another second. Listen, you don't know what they're thinking. You don't know what's happening on the other side of the phone. Just relax. You, don't, you can't predict the future. Well, if I don't call them, I just feel like they're going to call me and they're going to say, oh, why didn't you call me? Just relax. Just relax. Fourth principle. Keep tabs on your mind and your mouth. Keep tabs on your mind and your mouth. Let me ask you. Who's the most influential person in your life? Just think about that for a second. Who's the most influential person in your life? Now, like three of you are probably super spiritual, so you're thinking Jesus. Some of you are Pentecostal, so you're saying the Holy Spirit. And then the rest of us either have nobody in our minds or someone that's played a big part as a mentor. I would guess for most of us, the most influential person in your life is you. Nobody spends as much time around you as you. Nobody thinks about you as much as you. Nobody speaks into your own mind as much as you. We tend to counsel ourselves long before we get counseling from anyone else, right? We've got thoughts. So the question really is, if you're the most influential person then in your own life, what do you say to yourself? What do you, what do you say to yourself? I could tell you 
if I, if I created a top five list of reasons people come in for any kind of pastoral counseling, top two or three will be this. Their thought life has got out of control. They find themselves maybe isolated in life, um, but believing lies from the enemy because the enemy is an accuser. And so I'll ask them, tell me about your thought life. What are the thoughts you have? Well, I just hear, I'm not good enough. I'm not worth anything. I say, well, what does that thought sound like? You stink. You're horrible. God must hate you, right? And I say, you do understand the, di- the, the devil is defined as an accuser of the saints. God doesn't accuse you like that. Where did that thought come from? And, and, and what the devil plants a seed in, we exacerbate by entertaining that thought. And that's a choice on our end. Our thought, lights, our thought lives, lives just get away from us from time to time. People say, we got to go with your gut. What are you thinking? I don't know. What do you think I should do? Just go with whatever your first thought was. Go with your gut. The Bible says you can't trust your gut. We're wicked. We're sinful. We're broken. Sometimes that's the best, that's the best thing. Christians give advice to each other. They say, just go with your gut. And I say, don't. <laughs> Don't. Your gut changes depending on what you eat. It depends on it changes every day. You can't trust that thing. My gut tells me every night at nine o'clock I should eat more snacks. <laughs> every single night. I look at Tara and say, What do we got for snacks? She says, I don't know. Same thing we had yesterday. I can't trust my gut. I can't trust it. I think um, left to our own devices, we'll come up with about anything. When I was like eight, nine, ten years old, we had a paper route in our tiny little town. This is my brothers. We all started it. We had, uh, you know, probably like five, six streets in the whole town and maybe like 20 houses on each street. And so we split it up. And for years, we had this for seven years. And it changed over the years. Some of us had bigger routes. At first, I only had like six or seven houses because I was only like seven years old. But I did it every single day, every day. By the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I had the whole paper route to myself. And the part that I hated the most, the part that I hated the most was collection time each month. Because at collection time, I would have to take my little collection book and I would have to go and, and knock on the doors of every person who got the newspaper and say, I'm here to collect the monthly dues. It's like $7.50 or something. Back then, I guess maybe that, that was something. And, and I hated it because here's what would happen. Most of the people in this tiny community that were, were, there, were like widows or they were shut-ins or they were people who were single. Um, and the second I would knock on their door, they would light up because another human was there to talk to them. And I would come in, and I would sit, and their houses usually smelled funny because they're a bunch of old ladies and whatnot, and I just didn't like it. I felt kind of weird. But they would tell me as they were writing their check, it was amazing how much they could rifle off <laughs> to me about their life and their week and what they thought about the world. And I felt later in life horrible for them as I looked back because what happened was they were isolated, and they just unloaded on me, nothing about the newspaper or my job or how I was doing, but just unloaded on me what they thought about their neighbors, what they thought about their ex-husband, what they thought about the news. I mean, everything in their minds just got puked out onto this 10-year-old little boy, and I just wanted 750 so I could deliver the paper to him. 
It's kind of like that old story, that old illustration of, of the, the guy whose car breaks down out in the country, and he's about a mile away from someone else, and, and he says, you know what, I can just go and get gas or, or get some tools from the neighbor. I see their light on down there, and so they start headed that way, and about a quarter mile down the road, they say, huh, well, um, I hope they're friendly. I hope they don't have dogs, and, and then half a mile um, down the road, they say, hmm, I wonder if they're even going to be home, and, and then three-quarters of a mile down the road, they think, well, huh, what if they don't want to help me at all? And then by the time they get there and knock on the door and someone answers, says, hello, what can I do for you? They say, fine, I don't want your help anyway. And the idea is we talk ourselves into all kinds of crazy things all the time. And the truth is, here's the bottom line for you and I, we have limited knowledge, each one of us, right? We have insecurities, we have bias, we have blind spots that we don't know what our own blind spots are, and we need outside counsel. We need the Word of God speaking into us. We need godly people speaking into us. This is why judges shouldn't judge their own cases, and surgeons shouldn't perform their own surgeries. And in the same way, you shouldn't always believe your own thoughts so that you don't say what you shouldn't be saying. Because what happens in your mind will come out of your mouth. Who counsels you? Who counsels you? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you look at verses 1 through 6, particularly verse 5, Paul addresses some people at the the Corinthian church who, who were talking smack about Paul. And he says, I'll be there in person and I'll address them. And he says that they demolish strongholds and every argument by taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. For some of us, our entire relationship with Jesus would change if we instilled this one principle, knowing I can't always control everything I think, but I can control whether I entertain it. When a thought comes in your mind, test it against truth. This means you've got to know truth. Test it against the Spirit of God. You're no good. Really? Is that what the Bible says? I'm not going to entertain that thought. I tested it against truth. God says I'm loved. God says I'm his child. God says a whole bunch of stuff about me. Not going to believe that lie. And you'll find that your drives home (laughs) aren't filled with misery because you're left to your own devices. You're not entertaining a bunch of junk. When your thought life changes, your mouth changes, and your life changes. Last but not least, you guys are doing good. No one's cried yet. No one's passed out yet. No one's left yet. Maybe I haven't been paying attention to that. But anyway, verse 15. Fools are so exhausted by a little work that they can't even find their way home. What does that mean? Last principle for tonight. You've got to know God's plan. You've got to know God's plan. This verse um, from the Hebrew could also be translated. The effort of fools wearies him who does not know his way to town. In other words, fools get exhausted when they try to give people advice or when they try to make plans, when they try to be smart, because they don't know anything. <laughs> And so if you come to a fool and you say, give me some advice, like, you know, I think he could do this, or, well, you could do this. Well, you know what? I tried this, or I heard about this, and they start sweating a little bit. Like, you don't know what the answer is. Or, or what are you going to do with your life? Hey, it's, it's, you're 18, right? What are you going to do? 
well, I don't know. I'm going to do this. Okay, you're 21. Um, you haven't done anything in three years. Now, what are you going to do? You're going to go to school. You're going to get a job. Well, I don't know. Well, you're going to uh, just. Well, they're 24, and then they're 80, and they're living in their parents' basement still. And you say you have worked really hard at not going anywhere. Fools get really tired. They get exhausted because they don't know where to go. That's really sad. They, they don't know God's plan for their life. So they can't make their own plans. This is the whole point. This is what Solomon's been teaching us for 10 chapters now. You've got you to reverse engineer your life. You've got to define life going forward, saying, where am I headed? Oh, I need a clear picture as to where, where I'm supposed to end up in life. I'm not talking about houses and cars. I'm talking about heaven. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. So then you can live life backwards and say, if I know where I'm going, it's going to determine how I live every day until I get there. Some of us, we, we find ourselves saying, <laughs> Ryan, you're silly. That's crazy. That whole fool thing. Yeah, that, that's not me. But then we're going to go home tonight and we're going to call our friend and we're going to say, you know what? I'm just so sick and tired of being sick and tired. And if they were at cross training tonight, they're going to whisper and say, that sounds like verse 15. Well, I've just been in this relationship a long time and he's playing with my mind and I don't know what to do and I'm frustrated. It's been years. Well, are you guys talking about marriage? Do you, do you both love the Lord? Well, I don't know. We talked about it a long time ago, but not anymore. Do, do you know where you're headed? Well, well, I'm in this job and I just feel like it's not going the way that I want it and, and I'm struggling. Okay, you've had drama with the same job for years. Do you know why you're working there? Well, I don't know. I just applied for it and I got it. You're there to serve the Lord. Some of us need a clear picture. The reason I've devoted my life to ministry is because I, I know I am committed. I know I'm going to heaven. And so from here until there, I want to make the biggest impact in the kingdom of God that I can make. And if God says, be the pastor here, if God says, go work at McDonald's and just serve people, whatever he tells me to do, I know the picture painted is be a kingdom builder. And the truth is, if you're not that person, you at least know that person that's always got continual drama. They've always got junk going on. And when you ask them where they're headed in life, they just don't know. But they are exhausted trying to get there. Some of us, we got wishes, but we don't have goals. We don't know where we're going. Now, this is the beauty of Ecclesiastes. This is the beauty of the Bible. Solomon's been telling us for 10 chapters, quit chasing the American dream. Quit striving after all the things of the world and then complaining that they're not fulfilling you. But just know God, fear God, be with God. Of course, the whole Bible, Jesus, Jesus tells us, all ye who are heavy laden, if you're weary, come to me for rest. Are you a Christian tonight? Most in this room would say, yeah. Are you experiencing rest tonight? Spiritual rest? Probably a lot less would raise their hand for that. Don't overthink life. We had a little bit of drama in our house. I'll wrap this up. 
Last night we had a little bit of drama. This is this is not something that I'm I'm proud of or I like moments like this, but I try to be transparent, not for transparency's sake, but for the gospel's sake, hoping that you get something even from the junk in my own life. We were sitting there eating supper last night. Everything was going well. I was sitting across from Tara. Silas was sitting there, and I was talking to Tara, and we were in the middle of a conversation, and Silas, he he put his fork. I had my arm down like this on the table. He put his fork, he, just mo- he put it on the, the table and moved it towards me, and he pinched my skin with his fork against the table, and he, with a just a shove, dug it in and pinched. And without even thinking, my natural instinct was, grab that fork, and I grabbed his arm. You know, I'm 200 pounds, and he's 29. And I grabbed his wrist, and I squeezed that, and I said, don't do that. And I let go. And his little face just dropped. And he started crying. He said, Daddy, you hurt me. Now, Tara and I were generally on the same page parenting-wise. But in this moment, as a father, my heart broke for my own son. And I just picked him up. And I didn't say a word to Tara. I just picked him up. I took him into another room. And I closed that door. And I grabbed his, the, the back of his neck. And I pushed his face up against mine. And I said, I am sorry. That is not okay, buddy. I said, I love you. I, I love, I said, do you forgive me? He said, yes, daddy. And then we talked about him putting the fork in me and I said, I forgive you, I love you. I said, you don't ever forget. That is never, ever gonna change. Do you know I'm gonna make mistakes and you're gonna make mistakes, but I love you and I will always forgive you. Will you forgive me? And he hugged my little neck like he was never gonna let go. And what was dramatic all of a sudden had some peace and some calmness pretty quick. And after that, we just went on with life. That was it. And and for some of us, we're in the midst of some drama. We're trying to get life figured out. We want to know, do I go left? Do I go right? God, speak to me. And relationships aren't working out. And jobs aren't fulfilling. And and we're struggling. and, And God's saying, don't overthink the gospel. Don't overthink it. I'm your father. I love you. Just receive my forgiveness. Receive my love. And just walk in that reality. The wisest thing you can do is realize you don't need to take two more steps to get into a direction that God wants you to go. The direction God wants you to go is falling on your knees and submitting yourself to him and saying, God, I just want you for you. I just want your love. I just want your forgiveness. And I receive it. And God, I don't care where you take me. I don't care who I marry. I don't care what house I buy. I don't care. I don't care. I just want you for you. I just love you. Your mind will clear up real quick because it gets filled with Christ. And the drama around you doesn't seem so dramatic because you're overwhelmed by God. Solomon's ultimately pointing us in that direction. There's good advice. There's good advice for life on earth. But the Bible's ultimately about the good news of Jesus. 
Is it still good news to you tonight? Don't overthink life. Let's pray.